This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Sam Adams, and this is Slate's Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club. On this episode, we'll be talking about They Live, John Carpenter's gonzo sci-fi satire of Reagan-era conformity. The movie stars professional wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper as an unnamed drifter, identified in the credits as nada, Spanish for nothing, who discovers that humanity is being controlled by an alien race. With the aid of a special pair of sunglasses, he's able to see that the aliens, who look like humans with their skin removed, walk freely among us in their expensive suits and designer dresses, and that they've infected popular culture with subliminal messages like obey, marry and reproduce, and no independent thought. He discovers the signal clouding humanity's mind emanates from a Los Angeles TV station, and he sets out to destroy it, knowing that if he fails, the knowledge that we have effectively been enslaved by an alien race may well die with him. Joining me to talk about They Live is Joshua Rothkopf. Josh is the global deputy film editor and senior film critic at Time Out New York, where he has been reviewing movies since 2004. Before that, he was the chief film critic for In These Times, and he's also written for The Village Voice and The Chicago Reader. He's also a fan of John Carpenter, especially They Live, and he wrote a great article about it for Rolling Stone in 2014. I'm delighted to have him with me to talk about the film. Josh, welcome to the club. Thanks, man. It's nice to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, So we've been starting off these episodes talking about the history that people have with these movies. And I know you write about it in the Rolling Stone article very well about your history with John Carpenter and especially with this movie. So I just wanted to start by asking you to talk about that. Oh, yeah. John Carpenter was, he was like a mythical figure for me when I was growing up. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be a composer and I was a musician And I was also obsessed with horror and reading all these Stephen King books and Clive Barker books. And then eventually the film bug bit me and I wanted to make movies. And Carpenter was someone who did all of those things and combined them together and did them expertly. And I was, when I finally made it to film school in the early 90s, I was literally asking myself on like a daily basis, what would JC do? Like what, what would Carpenter do on set in this situation? The irony was that right in the early 90s was when Carpenter's discipline was starting to unravel. That still didn't prevent me from going to see Escape from LA five times in opening weekends. And, and I was, every single shot in a John Carpenter film is, is so crisp and beautifully composed and anamorphic widescreen and, and identifiable. And he really was the whole package for me. He was somebody who was both a genre stylist, but also supplying that with smarts and political. He was everything that I wanted to be. Yeah. And so what about They Live? What what effect did seeing that have on you? Oh, well, They Live was basically Carpenter swinging for the fences. I mean, if I'm being truthful, I came to John Carpenter with Halloween Mm -hmm. and The Thing. And if you think about the decade between Halloween in 1978 and They Live in 1988, you're talking about this incredible ping-ponging career that he has where in 78 he's on top of the world he does halloween he follows that up with the fog and escape from new york where the films are making money the production values are getting better and he spends all of his political capital remaking his favorite film by his favorite director howard hawks is the thing and carpenter's version is it's a masterpiece. It's gooey and it's disgusting and it's it improves on the original, um, but it's clobbered at the box office. And Carpenter, 
he blames the failure of that film on what he calls the summer of Spielberg, this idea of people not wanting to go see evil aliens in the summer of 1982. They wanted to see E.T. They wanted to see a story that was inspiring. And so the thing tanks. And during the production of that movie, he gets offered the chance to make Stephen King's Christine by the time the thing comes out though and it does so poorly that offer is rescinded from him and he's basically cut adrift <laughs> and then he worms his way back into hollywood's good graces he makes starman which is um, a very solid science fiction film in fact i think it's the only science fiction film that scored a best actor nomination an oscar nomination for jeff bridges and he does the same mistake again he he, he spends all of his capital and all of his goodwill and his momentum on making a passion project and that's Big Trouble in Little China. And then the film, again, does poorly. It's a fun film, a fun action film, a comedy, very indebted to martial arts films. But no one's willing to take the ride with Carpenter, and he retreats to the indie world. He makes Prince of Darkness. And by the time we reach 1988 and they live, a certain kind of creative desperation has set in with him. It's hard for him to get projects financed. It's hard for him to sustain enthusiasm once they are. And he really needs to make something that's serious and also political, I suspect. And he's seething at the same time at what's happening in, in America with the Reagan revolution. And so all these things combine into They Live. And when I saw They Live in 1988, it was basically the perfect melange of everything I wanted to go to the movies to see. I wanted to see a horror film, a science fiction film, a genre film. I wanted to see beautiful style. I wanted to see political ideas. I wanted to see economic disparity. I wanted the film to actually make a pointed attack on its viewers. I wanted it in a weird way to educate us. I know that that's sort of a loaded word, but I believed strongly that horror films and science fiction films were able to carry that component. And Carpenter was basically the main director who was proving me right. Yeah, there's a really interesting quote from Carpenter, not from the time at looking back on it, where he said, by the late 80s, I'd had enough. And I decided I had to make a statement as stupid, as banal as it is, but I made one and that's they live. Absolutely. I think he's tired of being pigeonholed as somebody who's just a horror filmmaker. I mean, he's obviously got the facility to make any kind of film he wants to make. He's always wanted to make a Western. He's obsessed with directors like Howard Hawks and John Ford. And the guy, he wants to make something that people will talk about. Right. We're recording this not long after the death of George Romero, who, of course, directed Night of the Living Dead and The Crazies and Martin and Knight Riders and, and a whole bunch of other movies. And as really kind of one of the founders of the kind of modern, socially conscious genre horror movie. And he's someone that Carpenter actually links himself with at the very end of the movie. It does a kind of unusual thing in just the last minute or two. But the protagonist, Roddy Piper, kind of disappears from the movie and we just get a series of kind of disconnected scenes and a lot of TV broadcasts. And we'll talk about how important TV is in this movie in a minute. But one of the broadcasts you see are these two, you know, Siskel and Ebert-ish film critics talking, you know, in, in disdainful terms about some sort of schlocky, disreputable horror movie. And one of them says, well, you know, filmmakers like George Romero and John Carpenter have to show some restraint. All the sex and violence on the screen has gone too far for me. I'm fed up with it. Filmmakers like George Romero and John Carpenter have to show some restraint. They're simply... 
Uh, That's an incredibly self-indulgent thing to do at the end of your own movie. But I love it. I love that he puts that in there because it's basically saying it's us versus them, not just in the universe of they live, but in the universe of horror filmmaking. Yes. And by the end of the movie, we can see the aliens, too, even without our special sunglasses. And the character who's saying that turns out to be one of the aliens. And you mentioned the sort of commercial failure of The Thing in 1982. That movie was also really just trashed by critics across the board, which is kind of almost unimaginable now. I mean, it's a movie that even people who don't regard Carpenter that highly across the board, I think is almost universally understood to be a great film at this point. Looking back at They Live, it's interesting. This is a movie that I have trouble remembering when it came out. I always think it was earlier than it was because, as you mentioned, it came out in 88, sort of at the tail end of the Reagan years, and it feels just so much of a piece with them. I sort of always remember it having come out in like 85, 86, like right in the thick of it. But as Jonathan Latham points out, he wrote a monograph on the movie, which is just also called They Live. And one of the things he points out in that is that this movie was shot, I think, in February, March of 88, came out in the fall. And one of the things that happened in between them were these large-scale protests, sometimes called riots, in Tompkins Square Park in New York City. And those were the protests that spawned what became this very famous rallying cry, die yuppie scum. So a lot of the stuff that we think of as core to the 80s is really only kind of congealing into an ideology or a movement at this point in time. So the movie is really very in sync with that. It's been noted that the film comes out right around Election Day. That wasn't exactly intentional. They were intending on releasing They Live on October 21st, I believe, but they moved it off that date so it wouldn't compete with Halloween 4, paradoxically enough. So they moved it back two weeks and then they're like, oh, this is actually a political moment. And Another thing about the 80s congealing, I like the way you put it, is it's right around then in the in 87 and 88 when it becomes clear, I think, to everyone that trickle-down economics wasn't working. And they live really foregrounds that concept. I mean, we see a lot of homeless and we see people who are left behind by the American dream. There's dialogue that specifically speaks to that. One of the things I love about the production of They Live is this anecdote I've heard where John Carpenter, he wanted to have homeless people in his movie, which is largely set in East LA. And he actually, he hired real homeless people. He gave them a day's pay. He fed them. And the people that we see in They Live who are sort of living in this shantytown that gets attacked by police, those are not actors. Those are actual homeless people that he wants to put them on screen. This is something that people who go to see horror films aren't normally confronted with. The idea of a failure of government, a failure of municipal government, and also of a larger national vision. And I think that's why they live, or it's one of the reasons why they live is so timely now. Yeah. So into this shanty town, which I think is only referred to once in the film, I know, but it's called Justice Town, which is very subtle right. irony. It's not a subtle film. No, <laughs> you know, no, but, it's but really not. But yeah. I, that's what I love about it. I mean, not to interrupt you, but it's sort of like it's social thriller horror with training wheels. It's right. the kind of film where you can show it to a young person and say, it doesn't have to just be gore. It doesn't have to just be evil that gets vanquished or is fought against. It, it can contain politics and economics and different ideas. It's very easy to understand and approach and analyze. And the article you wrote about it, you mentioned the kind of training wheels thing. And you, I think you compare it to Network as well, which is obviously a, a movie that much more squarely foregrounds the importance of TV in this kind of mass indoctrination. 
But, you know, thinking about those two movies in concert, I mean, this may be as much a matter of personal preference than anything else, but I, I kind of prefer the they live approach. It is in some ways simpler. I mean, it is a movie in which you literally see once Nada puts on these sunglasses. I mean, you have these just giant kind of posterized keyword commands that were later, of course, appropriated by the artist Shepard Fairey in these you know, commands like obey and no independent thought, you know, marry and reproduce, you know, literally boldface criticism of this kind of right wing conformist indoctrination. But I think there's something about the boldness of that and the irreality of doing this in the form of a science fiction movie that in a way works better for me and endures better than a movie like Network, which, while it has its allegorical qualities, is kind of fundamentally taking place in the real world. And so the parts where it does kind of step over the line and move into fantasy, I, I think, are more injurious to that movie than they are to a movie like They Live. I think that's a fair point. With Network, which is a film I love, the build is slower. It's a movie where the absurdity of news and the absurdity of our appetites as consumers sort of increases and amplifies over time. Whereas They Live gives us a sequence that's so shocking and so visually masterful that it's actually one of my favorite sequences in all of movies, not just horror movies, because it basically, it's a small little lesson in semiotics. What it does is it reduces it to, like you say, a very simple bold-faced version of exposing the truth. But all those ideas, those are Carpenter's ideas that he's adding to this original short story and the comic book that came from it. My favorite part of that sequence is Nada, the character who's played by Roddy Piper. He has a little bit of a, an argument with the newsstand man and pans down to the guy's hand, or maybe it's just a cut, and you see the bills in his hand and the bills say, this is your God. <laughs> and for that idea to come in a Hollywood movie, Hollywood, which is not exactly antithetical to money, yep. you know, it's just fascinating to me that that he's able to smuggle this in. It's not just obey and it's not just marry and reproduce behind a poster of some girl in a bikini on a billboard. It's also this idea that we are subservient, not just to aliens, but to money. Right. Which is fascinating. And also, it's not just that the content is so thrilling and inspiring and it's something that you can watch in a movie theater now and hear people like laughing and shocked by, but it's also, it's done with no dialogue. It's done almost completely visually. And yeah. that's Carpenter just being a genius. That's him basically saying, I'm going to use this very simple device this poetic idea of the sunglasses, but also a simple device of having black and white versus color and having matte paintings. That's basically what we're seeing when we're seeing the city in black and white with billboards. Those are all artist matte paintings that are superimposed over, you know, either city streets or added to the film itself. And that's just pure filmmaking craft. Have you seen, read the story it's based on? I have. It's not very similar. You remember that scene in Manchurian Candidate where they have the tea party in New Jersey? Yes. yes. And you're basically seeing a bunch of people who are brainwashed and it cuts to an alternate reality that they apparently see. That's basically what 8 o'clock in the morning, which is the story that Carpenter acquired, that's basically what it's like. It's someone who's sort of brainwashed and outside of his bubble, there are aliens around him. And that's sort of the kernel of the idea but everything that we think about when it comes to They Live, especially the political commentary, that's all supplied by Carpenter. 
And the media angle, as I understand it, is all him, too. I believe the hook of the original story, the screenplay for They Live, we should mention because it's not obvious just watching the film is written by Carpenter himself. He used a pen name, Frank Armitage, which comes from an H.P. Lovecraft story, but he did write it. And in the original story, the people are kind of literally hypnotized. So this guy goes to see a hypnotist, you know, an opening scene like The 39 Steps, which is old hat even then. And when the hypnotist says, wake up, at the end, he wakes all the way up. Right. And he sees that there are all these aliens in the audience. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's a great idea. You know, maybe that's a great idea for a short story or a comic book. But I think Carpenter's adding to it. And another reason why he uses the Frank Armitage pen name is because a lot of the contributions to the screenplay were also done by members of the cast and even members of the crew. It was, in a lot of ways, a collaborative effort. You'd think a carpenter who's so inspired in terms of his visual ideas and he has such a clear concept for the story he wants to tell, you'd think he really would have a real hammered-down script. But Roddy Piper's coming up with lines of dialogue himself and contributing to the script. There's a lot of the movement of the story that is actually something that is discovered both in the rewrites and on set. Carpenter is someone who sold scripts and was a pretty highly paid screenwriter before he made uh, They Live. And so he, he's someone who understands Hollywood, I think, in a very sophisticated way. He's a rascal, Carpenter. It's one of the reasons I love him. He's like, he's a Kentucky rascal. He sold scripts like The Eyes of Laura Mars and someone watching me and he's Carpenter's somebody who knows that the script's going to be changed and it's going to be developed by someone and taken in a different direction and it's fine it's sort of like the end product's what's important he's a very cool customer on set he's a very gentle director all the footage I've seen of him directing and when I've talked to Carpenter I've had the pleasure of interviewing him a couple of times he laughs a lot he invites you to answer questions of his own there's something that's very sweet and curious about him as a person and also on set his style, which I think feeds into They Live as well. Now, let's talk about Roddy Piper, because that is certainly for people who are watching the movie for the first time. His performance is kind of a make or break aspect of the film. He was you know, a performer. He had been in, you know, I think at this point, over a thousand professional wrestling matches. So he was certainly you know, knew how to work an audience and use his body and put on a character, but he was not an actor. And I, I don't think seeing this movie that you would necessarily mistake him for one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very diplomatic way of putting it. I think Roddy's fine in this film, but uh, you're right. He's not a an actor with a capital A, but he's someone who is believable. If we're talking about verisimilitude in terms of believability in the context of the story, he's perfect. He's perfectly fine. He's someone who's supposed to be every man. Nada, of course, means nothing. And the character of Nada that he's playing is somebody who's supposed to be the forgotten American. He's someone who's unemployed. He's someone who can't get a break. There's a certain aspect of Roddy's beefiness and his sort of undisciplined, untutored quality that I think definitely adds to the performance. I also think it's something that Piper has said on commentaries for this film, but he himself was homeless in early parts of his life. And as a result, I think Roddy has a real connection to this character, an emotional connection that I think feeds into the performance in an actual actorly way. And you can see it when he's escaping from Justice Town when the cops are attacking it and he sees a young boy who he grabs onto and they run together. And Piper has talked about how when he saw that kid, it was him. Yeah. It was him when he was a little boy. And you see him holding onto this kid, almost leaning all of his weight onto him and 
forcing them out of trouble and pushing them through windows. And there's something that's very physical and emotional about the performance that I love. I love it in an unironic way. Of course, he's a wrestler and Carpenter himself is a huge fan of wrestling. He's someone who, when he was 15, wrote a wrestling column and he watched wrestling. He still watches wrestling, I believe. And he met Piper at WrestleMania 3 which was in 1987. And this was when wrestling was probably at its popular peak. There were like 90,000 people in the audience. And Roddy came up to Carpenter's Skybox and they met and they talked. And and I, I feel like there was a real, honest, legitimate connection between the two in the sense that you can't have someone in this role who's like a Robert Redford or who's like this polished actor. I mean, it has to be someone who's earthy and real. Excuse me. Just survive. You know... You look like your head fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. You, you're okay. This one, real fucking ugly. You see, I take these glasses off, she looks like a regular person, doesn't she, huh? Put them back on, formaldehyde face, that's what we got. That's enough out of you. You get out or I call the cops. Call the cops? You know what you need? You need a Brazilian plastic surgeon. I've got one that can see. Right. I mean, I mentioned George Romero before. One of the things that really works for me in his films, and this may sound like an elaborate rationalization, but I don't think it is. But I mean, you know, most of the acting in George Romero movies is not very good, you know, especially some of the canonical ones. I mean, the acting. He's not known for acting. Yeah. I mean, the acting in The Crazies is pretty terrible. And that is also my favorite George Romero movie. And, and I think his best. It gives it this almost kind of weirdly documentary quality it prevents it from being this kind of slick genre allegory in the way that like Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead is you know there there's just this kind of level of grit and realism that comes into Romero's movies even when they're about the dead coming back to life and eating people's livers yeah i think that that's a really perceptive idea i think that sometimes when we're invested in a performance we lose sight of the concepts or we lose sight of the ideas and but that are behind the story and the performance. And I feel like, you know, you could actually go back to Hitchcock with that concept. Hitchcock himself wasn't really known for performances. Of course, there are some great ones in his movies. I think of Raymond Land in uh, Strangers on a Train, maybe Anthony Perkins in Psycho. But for the most part, Hitchcock is the star, right? He's, yeah. he's, he's someone who would never be known for brilliant performances, by and large. That's a generalization. And I think that Carpenter falls in line with that. He's capable of directing brilliant Oscar-nominated performances. He's capable of getting subtlety from actors, but that's not what he's after here. He's after something sledgehammer simple, something where we can take the elements of this film and hold them in our hands and say, no, these are tools that we can use to break apart the culture that's all around us. And I mean, there is something about the way Roddy Piper walks into this movie. There's this shot in which they're introduced. The camera, it's in a train yard. The camera dollies, I think, past the title of the movie, which is graffitied on a piling in this train yard, a freight train moves across the screen. And then it just reveals Roddy Piper in the distance there. And it's like he's, it's almost like he's been kind of beamed down into it. And there's a way in which he kind of doesn't belong in this movie that I think is really interesting. He's not, 
the character you expect him to be. He is this kind of Grapes of Wrath style forgotten man. I think the first significant scene that he's in is him going to the unemployment office and saying, you know, I, you know, working in Denver on a construction site, then everything dried up. But, you know, I got my own tools. You know, he's self-contained. He believes in America. As he later said, he just wants to catch a break. And he's refused at every turn, but he's not cynical. He meets up with this kind of fellow drifter played by Keith David on a construction site. And Keith David is much more the kind of, you know, wise to the ways of the world. He he talks about the golden rule. He that has the gold makes the rules. And Nada says, no, you know, I believe in America. And I think if you work hard, you get a shot. And the movie eventually teaches him otherwise. But it's interesting that he is really someone who is invested in that core idea still even though america has you know by most tokens kind of failed him when he he enters the story he's someone who still holds on to that and it kind of prevents the movie from being this entirely tidy left-wing allegory about how you know the upper classes are all evil and and brainwashing us and we're the suckers just being narcotized by popular culture yeah i mean it's it's amazing to me that Carpenter cops that line from The Godfather, that Nada is actually saying, I believe in America, that he's expressing this, I mean, you could call it naivete, but I really think that that's Carpenter at his most exposed. He's somebody who really honestly, and I'm talking about John Carpenter, the director, he's really someone who believes that America can work. Right. But his experience in Hollywood and writing scripts and making genre films and even failing at the box office and, and being demoted by Hollywood to a large extent teaches him otherwise, like you say. And it's sort of like the dollar rules and he's seen his art taken away from him. And all that cynicism gets poured into this script. It gets poured into this one final shot. Final, I say, obviously he's made lots of films since then, but They Live is for me the last time when Carpenter gets everything together, gets it all working together, and he's composing and viewing the shots to the camera and really trying to make a statement. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Carpenter is someone who, and, you know, this movie is one that kind of believes in a way in the kind of fundamental promise of America, but it also is telling us, like, do the right thing, which is another product of the Reagan era. It's telling us that we need to wake up. You know, one of the first things you hear in the movie, and it actually is Carpenter's voice. I think it was kind of a surprise that the um, sound engineer sprung on him. He had just kind of done a dummy track. Carpenter actually kind of improvised the score at his keyboard. And one of the things he threw in there was just himself saying, sleep. That's and it's right. kind of, you know, slowed down and distorted in the movie. You, I don't even know if you could tell if it was his voice, if you knew, but it is his. It's interesting that movies don't figure into this movie at all. He's kind of squarely blaming TV, but it is this real force. It's just telling you to stay asleep. And that is one of the really interesting contrasts with a movie like Network. I think the best, most succinct critique I've read of Network is that its kind of fundamental flaw is that the, the climax of that movie is everybody kind of rising up off their couches and going to their windows and screaming, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And the counter argument is that TV has never motivated anybody to get off their couch and do anything. What TV does is motivate people to keep watching TV. And that's what it does in this movie. I mean, one of the things Lethem criticizes it for in his book is that the Justice Town sequences, you see these homeless people, they're not you know, preparing to riot like the protesters in Thompson Square. They're sitting there somehow getting an electrical signal in the middle of this kind of shantytown in the middle of this field, but they're watching 
TV and they've got armchairs and they're just kind of sitting there watching this thing and they're completely enthralled to it. And that's all they do. Yeah. And these are people who have every reason to believe the system has failed them, every reason to be angry and disenfranchised. And instead, they're just kind of, you know, fat and happy and just, you know, they get mad when the TV signal goes out and then it comes back and they're fine. Yeah, it's it's a very cynical idea. There's also shots of Nada, Roddy Piper's character, looking in at a TV in another apartment and seeing someone who's sitting there watching. It's either a commercial or a soap opera or someone expressing this dream of being someone else. And it's the detachment that all the characters really demonstrate i think is i think that's a lot more provocative to put in a film than this idea that let's rise up about television and i think ultimately what carpenter's saying is that it's going to take a real shock for us to wake up like you say and it, it's going to take us fighting against each other and i guess that's a good lead in into yes, this yep. this amazing scene that this film is known for this 10 minute long fight right i mean it's i love the fact that like a movie like Red River, it's a fight between two people who love each other, basically. And that's what makes it interesting. It's two people who are friends and who, in a way, they want to work together, but they have to kind of fight it out. And I think that that's, that in and of itself is a comment. Carpenter's saying that we run the risk of a destroying each other just to become aware of the evil that we face. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that scene. Let me just set it up for listeners a little bit and... and... I should say, as I've said this in every episode, that these are, you know, generally intended to be, I think we'll get more out of the podcast, at least if you've seen the movie first. And, it helps. Um, yeah. And so we're not going to be too shy about spoilers. But in this case, the spoiler is that there's a giant fight in the movie. The what's happened, what's happened is that um, Nada has found these sunglasses. There's kind of a, a resistance headquarters near Justice Town, hidden in a church where they're kind of have been applying different chemical treatments to these sunglasses that when you put them on, allow you to see the world as it really is. And the police come and they raid the headquarters. People are either captured or run away. They take these bulldozers and destroy the shantytown. But Nada escapes with, you know, one pair of these sunglasses. And then he sees the world. But he, as far as he knows, he's the only person who sees it. And then so he finally goes back, finds a box of sunglasses, gets one more pair, and then Keith David, this fellow construction worker whose cynicism about the world he had previously dismissed, now he realizes that Keith David doesn't even know the half of it. And so he's determined that Keith David is going to put on a pair of these sunglasses so that he can also see what's going on. At this point, unfortunately, Nada has also murdered several of the aliens and he's uh, shot several of them, including a couple who were serving as police officers. So he's a wanted cop killer. And Keith David, who, for all his cynicism, is someone who just wants to work a job and get enough money to send back to his, his wife and kids, now wants nothing to do with Nada because, you know, he's trouble. And so, you know, simply telling him, man, you got to put these sunglasses on is not convincing enough. And that is when the fists come into it. I'm trying to save you and your family's life. You couldn't even save your own! I'm giving you a choice. Either put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. Not this year. Okay. All right. Okay. Come on. Come on. 
man. And it's and it's a real brawl. This isn't a film that has like martial arts or kicking in it. And it's it sort of brings up this almost like a chicken and egg idea. Did he cast a wrestler because he wanted to have this scene as a centerpiece in his movie, which is basically almost I think it's like nine minutes long of just a slugfest and he and he needed a believable person to do this or did the scene develop because he had cast Roddy Piper it's hard to say but it's but I know that it's intentional that it goes on for so long and yeah. it's got comedy beats in it and changing shifts of emotion and I mean it's it's hilarious to watch with an audience because people are just stupefied after it passes that four or five minute mark and you're like this fight is still going on and I think that that's intentional I think Carpenter is, like we've said, it's like he is basically saying it's going to take blood for us to realize this terrible situation we're in. We're going to have to beat ourselves senseless and hopefully survive it just so we can mobilize against it. Right. And there are actually, you know, moments in the fight and it kind of stops and starts several times. And there's a moment when Keith David's character you know, kind of thinks he's won and is walking away and catching his breath. And then Nada comes at him again. And he, Keith David, I think you can almost see him kind of roll his eyes at that, like, God, what, you're still fighting? And that's really, I mean, that's right where the audience is that part too. Like yeah. where there's another, another round. Here. Yeah, ex- exactly. And it's, I mean, it's a euphoric scene to watch with the crowd. I mean, I think that there is content behind it. And it's interesting. Carpenter has talked about how they rehearsed the scene for weeks, uh, you know, in, in his backyard, and they they included all sorts of special wrestling moves and, you know, pile drivers and leaps that Roddy Piper was known for. So it's kind of developed to showcase the actors and Keith David himself as a dancer and, you know, a very physical presence himself. But it's the kind of sequence where it sort of reboots the movie in a way. And then it has a beautiful coda, like almost like a punchline to it, where you see these two beaten up guys walking into the lobby of this like flea bit hotel where they're going to check in and kind of like lick their wounds and sort of figure out what are we going to do next. And it's that's what they've reduced themselves to. But they're woke. I mean, not to use the fashionable term, but that's what they live is basically about. It's about getting woke. Yeah. I mean, there is a really interesting aspect to it. I mean, as with Romero's Night of the Living Dead, I mean, there's, I think, a question about how much racial allegory you can read into it. It's certainly something people have talked about with um, the ending of, of The Thing, which is just kind of Kurt Russell and Keith David staring at each other and maybe one of them is the monster and maybe one of them isn't. And they just got to kind of sit there and wait in that moment of profound distrust and, and lack of knowledge between two people definitely has a racial component. And in this case, you're dealing at the beginning of the movie where the white man who says America works, a black man who knows that it doesn't. And then it kind of gets, you know, flipped in this thing. I mean, the, the, I guess I guess you could say the white man is like, you know, somebody who just took his first college class on yeah. you know, systemic oppression or something like that. It's like, no, man, you really have to understand this. And yeah. the guy's like, yeah, I lived this my whole life. I know how it works. Right. <laughs> and, but at the same time, he doesn't. And I feel like, I, I mean, you consider Romero and Carpenter. It's like they're smart enough to know that they don't have to have an actual discussion about race. They can have racially tinged 
content and ideas just by the casting. Right. I think that's really sophisticated. It's, I think, one of the reasons why a director like Jordan Peele is inspired by Romero and Carpenter he's talked about. It's because they're stealth artists. They're smuggling in serious right. ideas in the context of something that's supposed to be, you know, disposable fun. Right. You know, and as with kind of some of the, the TV stuff, it, you know, it lays it on thick, but it also doesn't, you know, it doesn't exactly tell you what to think about it. And, and there's something I've been thinking a lot about because of the idea that, you know, this is 1988. Are we really just still saying kind of, you know, TV is bad and it sells you lies, but there is something very specific to the period about the way that it's doing that we um talked in an earlier episode when Mark Harris and I talked about the Manchurian candidate or how that the conspiracy thriller genre really kind of seems to be born along with the kind of definitive entry of TV into American homes that really happened in the 1950s but it, it started to you know classically people say kind of with the the presidential debates in in 1960 and the televised images of, of JFK's funeral it really started to be kind of the primary driver of popular discourse in the 60s which is when we start to get these ideas in these conspiracy thrillers about you can't believe what you see you know yeah. what, what you I mean, think you see is a lie it's like a fascinating idea the idea that television is a sort of a traditional culprit in a lot of these conspiracy movies. Yes, JFK with the debate, but also Nixon, when you consider the Checker speech where he's basically insisting on his innocence and all of his speeches and then, of course, his televised resignation, Nixon is in his own way just as defined by television and sure. just as much of a television president. And then you get Reagan, who is basically, you know, the great communicator, as it were, but also someone who who actually comes from entertainment and comes from Hollywood. And, right. and Carpenter, you know, for someone who's made his livelihood as a filmmaker, he's very critical of Hollywood and entertainment and the and the power of images. But you don't see a lot of that kind of critique in in horror films, generally speaking. Yeah, and what what the programs in this movie are doing? What, what's interesting is, I mean, they're not telling you what to think. You know, it's not some guy on the news saying like, "Here's what you should think about what's going on in the country." They're just a vision of this kind of life. You know, it's this airbrushed you know, I think uniformly white vision of upper class satisfaction. And it's it's telling him, I mean, this is what you should be aiming for. And also the subtext to that is if you haven't gotten this, you failed. You know, this yeah. is available to you. And if you haven't done it, if you're still sitting in Justice Town watching TV, that's your fault. Yeah. And I I love how specific it is and and just there's a great scene in a grocery where there's a guy who's complaining about how he hasn't gotten this promotion and he's talking to someone who's an alien and the guy's so blithe he's so dismissive the alien doesn't even turn back to look at him he says just go for it man yeah the film is loaded with that kind of like it's snobby but it's also kind of like this sort of blustery just go for it attitude which is just so sickening to me and and i and i love how when we finally come upon this conference room this banquet hall where the aliens are communicating with human beings who are seated there and having some rubber chicken dinner and and they're the human what do they call the human power elite? Yes, the, yeah, basically, the human yeah. power elite. These are the humans that have been allowed to sort of coexist in the knowledge of knowing about the aliens. And it's, I always laugh at this. There's someone who's giving a speech from the podium and he talks about how you've all seen your net worth increase by an average of 37%. And everyone applauds. And it's like, 
37 percent it's like it's almost like a joke in and of itself like, right it's like such that's a, the margin that's, for collaboration yeah. yeah you'll sell out your species and you'll sell out your civilization for you know your own personal worth expanding by 37 percent i think that that's i mean there's a sophistication to the writing of this script that i think is still underappreciated right and that the question of and i guess we won't spoil you know, too specifically this part since we've gotten this far without doing it. But I mean, the, the question of human collaborators, you know, the fact that it's not just this alien race who is lulling people into submission, but there are humans who know and who knowingly profit from it. And that becomes a really critical element in the film's ending. I mean, it really would be overly simplistic if, if this was just a simple alien invasion movie. This is a movie about how a new power structure has come in and given us basically an offer, you know, work with us or die or become brainwashed basically. And that's, I think a much more insidious criticism of the way power really works, which is to say it will co-opt you. It will take what's individual about your thought and your life and will co-opt that. And you'll be brainwashed without even knowing it. You will obey, you will, you know, consummate your marriage and you will consume and you and the money will be your God, all the, the subliminal messages. But almost worse is the fact that you'll do it happily. You'll do it right. by your own volition. Right. And you will and you may even profit from it. It's just you will lose the ability or the desire, which is even more terrifying. You will lose the desire to define success on your own terms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, God, I, I, I would love to talk to John Carpenter about Trump right now and about what's going on. This a question that I, I hope this is okay that we can talk about Trump. But, like, but, <laughs> is, yeah. but, but just the question that I keep on bumping my head against, and, and there are many, obviously, but it's this idea that, you know, if Donald Trump Jr. had these meetings or was invited to this meeting, say, that it doesn't even occur occur to him that this might be a problem. It doesn't even occur to the Trumps in general that colluding or potentially colluding with a, with a hostile foreign power is a problem. It's almost like they've not had those lessons in civics. They're, they're so self-interested and, and they're so selfish, for lack of a better term, that it, no one ever taught them like, oh, that's a bad thing to do. The ethics is completely divorced from it. Right. And their argument is, in fact, um, anybody would have done that. Anyone that would have done that because they're the people who are basically saying, just go for it. They're the people in that grocery who are basically saying, you know, us first. Ethics is something that I can opt out of because it's a drag. You know, it's something that I that I have to think about my actions and, and their ramifications. I have to think about how other people are going to be affected by it. Forget about it. We're here to win an election. And I think that obviously it's a great moment for a new they live to come about. It, it, right now is a perfect moment, but it's it would be a very sour and cynical film because these people really have won. We see it on the news every night. Right. I mean, I, I think... Yeah, the terms would have to shift. I mean, if the flaw of network is that television motivates people towards inaction and not action, I think the flaw of they live is assuming that people only collaborate and remain part of the system because they don't know. I, I feel like what recent history and even before the election, but, but certainly since, I think what it shows us is that people you know, know they're the equivalent of these aliens living among us and they don't care. Yeah, exactly. They don't care. And it's almost like, I mean, I know that they're mounting this big production of Network for the stage. I think Brian Cranston's a part of it. And I'll be there. I'm excited to see that. But it's almost like we're beyond Network at this point. Yeah. We're, I mean, the lessons that Network tells us that TV is going to create a sort of crassness in the culture and turn us into bloodlusting audiences, that's something that's so... 
old and tired almost as an idea, but They Live's idea is, I think, still fresh. What makes They Live fresh is is basically indicting us in our own demise. Yes. <laughs> well, I like to end the podcast on a happy note, <laughs> and I think that's ours yeah. for this one. I want to thank Josh Rothkoff for being my guest on this episode of the Slate Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club, which I can assure you contained no subliminal messages of any kind. So you think. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, man. Thank you, Josh. This has been the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club on They Live. Read more about the movie and join our Facebook group to discuss the film at slate.com slash thrillers. Our next episode, coming in two weeks, will be on the Bourne Trilogy with Slate film critic Dana Stevens. The series is produced by Chow Tu. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, and I'm Sam Adams. See you next time.